Amen. Well, uh, in most areas of life, we don't really have much difficulty distinguishing between the healthy and the unhealthy. I mean, you know, generally speaking, you can look at a person, for example, we'll start with people, and you can tell if they're sickly or or well, right? I mean, you, it's pretty obvious when you've got a sick person or a healthy person. Or plants. Uh, you can tell if a plant is healthy and thriving or malnourished, diseased, or otherwise struggling, like this tree. You know, you can pretty well see. I'm not a botanist, but the tree on the right looks healthy. The tree on the left does not look healthy, right? And the same is true for animals. You can take dogs, for example, and you can generally tell when a dog is not feeling well or sick or whether it's healthy and, and vibrant. And, of course, cats as well. Uh, you can tell when cats are sick. And to be honest, I searched for about three hours on the Internet to try to find a picture of a healthy cat, and I just came up with nothing, so I'm not sure what to make of that. But, uh, but the point is, for some reason, we don't seem to recognize the category of unhealthy Christians. All too often, when we see someone struggling morally or spiritually, we jump to the hasty conclusion that they must not really be a Christian. Well, no Christian would act like that. There's a great deal of confusion in the church at large about the distinction, now listen carefully, between an unbeliever and an unhealthy believer. It can be difficult, if not impossible, to tell them apart. And yet, distinguishing between those two people, an unhealthy believer and an unbeliever, is vital if we're going to help those who are struggling with sin. An unbeliever, to begin with, needs to hear the gospel and be evangelized and be introduced to the amazing matchless grace of our Lord and, and recognize that their sin comes with a steep penalty and has separated them from a holy God and only by trusting in Jesus Christ, who took their place on the cross, paid their sin debt, rose from the dead, and offers to them freely the gift of, gift of eternal life only by trusting in Him, that Jesus, can they be saved from the penalty of sin. That's an unbeliever. But a believer who's struggling with sin needs to be exhorted and counseled and reminded of the benefits of walking in the Spirit and uh, not walking after the flesh. Well, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul addresses a group of young but healthy believers. These were uh, people of Jews and Gentiles alike who had come to faith uh, just a short time earlier when Paul and Silas and Timothy had visited Thessalonica on Paul's second missionary journey. And he's writing a letter back to them. And in the opening remarks of his letter that we're going to get to today, he provides uh, really a, a solid template for what a healthy believer looks like. Because these believers were vibrant in the faith and they were living out their faith and they were still on fire for the Lord. But before we get to the text, since this is the beginning of a new series, I want to take some time to kind of set the stage, lay some foundation, some what I call spade work, a background and historical context. So uh, let's go there next. So Thessalonica was a strategic city in the ancient world at that time, the first century in the Roman world. If you look at a map, you can see Thessalonica uh, there. I've circled it. Uh, this is ancient times. This is during Paul's day, uh, but you'll recognize uh, this part of the world. You can see Italy over there to the west with Sicily down there. You can see um, Greece uh, over to the east. You can see Turkey, that massive landmass. And then coming down the Mediterranean Sea, you can see uh, Jerusalem. And of course, Jerusalem's in the news a lot 
uh, these days, and we want to continue to pray for that uh, war. Um, and so that's Thess- Thessalonica. It flourished for hundreds of years because of its ideal location, central location there in the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea. It was one of the most important centers of population in Paul's day. It was strategic both governmentally and militarily. It was the chief seaport of Macedonia, that Roman province. Uh, Thessalonica, along with Corinth and Ephesus, were uh, two other main point, uh, provinces of Achaia and Asia. It was, it was a great shipping center. All three of them were, and they were kind of interconnected by roads. In fact, the famous Via Ignatia, or, or Ignatian Way, uh, spanned Macedonia from east to west, and it passed right through the walls of the city of Thessalonica. It's an important Roman highway that facilitated travel and commerce, and it, it really put Thessalonica in a strategic location with contact inland from, from the shore there uh, on either side of it. It was, it was like the principal artery uh, between Rome and her eastern provinces. It was also a very large city, the largest city in the Macedonian province. Uh, in Paul's day, the metropolitan area had nearly 200,000 people. And so that's equivalent to a city, say, like uh, Amarillo, maybe, if you've been to Amarillo, Texas. And Luke records that there was a, a Jewish synagogue there that was very influential. Many Greek proselytes, uh, Greeks, who, Gentiles who had become converted to Judaism would worship in that synagogue as well as Jews. And Paul uh, preached there. Uh, Luke describes Paul's synagogue ministry in Acts 17 when he got to Thessalonica. He said, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures and explained and demonstrated that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. By the way, that's what faith is. It's being convinced that something is true. And when you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin and that He alone is the only one with the power and authority to forgive your sin and give you the gift of eternal life, you're saved, that you've been persuaded that that's true. That's faith. Uh, Some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. There was a great harvest of souls there. Uh, Paul first visited Thessalonica during his second missionary journey, along with Silas, Timothy, uh, and uh, perhaps others. And again, even though uh, Luke only recorded those three Sabbath days, we know by comparing Scripture with Scripture that the total stay in Thessalonica was probably about two to three months from November of 50 A.D. to January of 51 A.D. And you can kind of tell some of this by reading into what Paul is saying in his letter that he writes back to them later that summer. Uh, But their successful work, to kind of set the stage for how they came to Thessalonica, their successful work at Philippi, Acts chapter 16, was suddenly terminated when Paul and Silas, if you remember, received that shameful beating. They stripped them of their clothes, beat them nearly to death, and threw them in prison, all because they dared to cast a demon out of a, a young slave girl. The problem was that slave girl was a fortune teller, thanks to the demon, and she was bringing her masters a lot of money. They were taking advantage and exploiting her and, you know, selling her services. You know, hey, you want to know the future? Here, give you $100 and this girl will tell you the future. Not unlike a lot of televangelists today monetizing Christianity. 
But uh, so when they cast the demon out of this girl, of course, the masters were not too happy and they, they attacked Paul and they threw him in prison. And, and that's uh, where, if you remember in Acts 16, they led the Philippian jailer to the Lord there in Philippi. And then miraculously, the Lord rescued them from that prison and they were you know, needing to flee the city. And Paul, if you remember, Luke tells us, refused to leave quietly. He's like, they you were secretly, he said, you know, they beat us in public. We're going to hold our heads high and leave. So they left. They went uh, from Philippi and made their way southward to Thessalonica. And Luke records the trip from Philippi to Thessalonica in the book of Acts. Along, It was along the Ignatian Way that I mentioned. It was a journey of about 100 miles. And uh, he gets there. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, the, the, what happens is those same... Uh, uh, you know, troublemakers uh, that uh, had caused trouble before came and caused more trouble there in Thessalonica, and they had to flee uh, to Berea. Uh, and then uh, when they got to Berea, they, which was about 40 miles westward, uh, Timothy joined them. They had some ministry there in the synagogue in Berea, and eventually another uh, outcry and persecution caused them to leave Berea, and they moved on from there to Corinth, and it was from Corinth in the summer of 51 AD um, that Paul wrote his letter back to the Thessalonians. By the way, right before he got to Corinth, interestingly, remember, he goes to Athens, and Athens in Acts 17, the latter part of Acts 17, is where he has that famous sermon at Mars Hill, where he addresses the Athenian um, philosophers. But he gets to Corinth, and he, he writes, after receiving a report from Timothy, he writes back uh, first and Second Thessalonians, two separate letters. We're going to deal with First Thessalonians first. I thought that would be a good way to do it. First Thessalonians first, and then Second Thessalonians. But he addresses several issues in this first letter. Um, he builds upon a lot of what he had taught them when he was with them just a few months earlier. For example, he encouraged them to persevere uh, despite the persecution that they were facing. Uh, he refuted some false charges that were being made by local enemies of the gospel. Again and again, Paul finds himself having to defend his apostleship because, you know, Satan's tactics never get old. If you want to, if you don't agree with someone, you, you personally attack them. Rather than dealing with the substance of the matter, you start running them down and sharing, you know, slanderous information about them and personally attack them. It's called a, a logical fallacy called ad hominem. And it, it, it's very effective. Uh, politicians uh, love to do it. They, they love to go dirty on the other person and dig up dirt that has nothing to do with the issues, but just kind of run them down. And so that Paul dealt with that in many of his uh, 13 letters. But he also, in 1 Thessalonians, corrected some errors that had arisen since Paul and his traveling party had left them. For example, they were uh, in, inclined to immorality and laziness and a tendency not to respect the church's leaders uh, because some of the Thessalonians apparently believed that Jesus Christ was about to return any moment. And so they'd given up their jobs, they'd become disorderly, and Paul told, you know, wrote to correct that. That, as we're going to see when we get to that part of the letter, is very important for us today because we all know, unless you're living in a cave, that you know time is short. The signs of the times are everywhere. The stage is being set like never before for the return of the Lord, the rapture. And, and consequently, some people 
uh, you know, doomsdayers are selling all their possessions, moving to a mountaintop, you know, digging a cave or whatever. And that's not at all the biblical mandate. We are here for a reason. We have a job to do. We're supposed to be faithful until the Lord comes. He wants to find us working and find us faithful, right? And so that's going to be important when we, when we talk about that. But Paul wanted to correct that. And also he wanted to address what happens to believers who had died. As they thought about the Lord coming back any second, uh, this was all new to them. Paul had taught them about the return of Christ and how it's going to happen in two phases. And by the way, in 1 Thessalonians is where we get our most detailed teaching about the rapture. I'm going to say more about that in a moment. But because they had heard all of that, and some of their believers, their, their friends and relatives had died between the time Paul had been there and when he wrote him this letter, and they were worried, well, what happens to them? So Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives them some instruction about how when believers die, they go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord, and we will see them again at the rapture. Um, and so his primary theme, though, throughout the whole letter is waiting for Christ's return. The Lord's return was prominent in Paul's mind from beginning to end. In fact, every chapter he refers to the rapture in this book. Chapter 4 is critical because he introduces the subject of the rapture. Isn't it fascinating that in Paul's earliest letters, Galatians came first. He wrote that after his first missionary journey in 49 AD. And then he writes First and Second Thessalonians in 51 AD. In all three of them, he talks about the return of the Lord. In fact, the very first letter he wrote, Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, in his opening remarks, he refers to the Lord as the one who rescues us from this present evil age, Galatians 1, 4. So anyone who overlooks the teaching of the end times and Christ's return is just you know, almost having to be intentional to do that. You're having to turn a blind eye to the plain, normal sense of what the Word of God tells us uh, throughout uh, Paul's letters and throughout the whole New Testament. Um, you know, it's interesting too, this is just a side note that I was thinking about as I was reviewing the background and history and the context of these letters. Not one time in First or Second Thessalonians does Paul quote the Old Testament, which is quite interesting when it comes to eschatology, because as some people try to suggest that, that Paul was talking about the second coming, there's only one return of Christ, there's not a rapture and a second coming, there's only one. Well, the Old Testament is filled with teaching about Christ's return to inaugurate the kingdom and usher in the long-awaited kingdom and take the throne in the rebuilt temple. So Paul was talking about the second coming, as he does in other places, and, and he makes other uh, teachings about uh, the nation of Israel and God's future for Israel, like Romans, for example. He frequently cites the Old Testament, as you would expect him to. Not one time in First and Second Thessalonians, because it's not about Israel, it's about the church and the rapture. So if we turn now to the text, I'm going to look at the first five verses this morning, and we're going to see from verse three, uh, three qualities of a healthy Christian. But let's take it verse by verse and set the stage before we get to chapter, I mean to verse three. Uh, verse one, Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul follows here the customary form of ancient letters in that day, giving the writer first, the destination second, and then a brief greeting third. And that greeting, grace to you and peace, 
uh, is distinctly Pauline. In other words, we find it nowhere else. It first appears in Paul's writings. It's, it's an inspired phraseology that the Holy Spirit led him uh, to, to write, and it probably expresses his own deep spiritual uh, experience, uh, grace and peace. I mean, I talked about when we were in Acts chapter 9, we, we taught through the book of Acts uh, a year or two ago, and I remember very vividly thinking when we were in Acts chapter 9 about the amazing picture of God's grace there for Paul. Here's Saul, a, a hater of Christ, a killer of Christians, and yet he meets the Lord on the road to Damascus, and what does the Lord do? He offers forgiveness and eternal life. He comes to faith. So Paul understood grace, and it's a powerful picture of grace. And so it's not surprising then that grace saturates everything that he talks about. And he, he greets people by saying grace to you. And then he adds, and peace. Because only those who have experienced the grace of our Lord at salvation can really have peace, right? I mean, an unbeliever can conjure up some sense of contentment and what they might call the world's peace, but it's not true peace. Only those who know the Lord can really experience the peace uh, that passes understanding, as Paul would talk about in his letter uh, to the Philippians. Uh, so that's his own phrase, grace to you and peace. He uses it often. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Now, this is hyperbole. Obviously, he's not saying every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every year. He's thanking God for the Thessalonians. Uh, but it's just expressing how grateful he is when he remembers them. Um, and he prayed often. This is continuing the pattern of the early church. If we go back to Acts, even starting in Acts chapter 2, they were devoted to prayer. We see it all through uh, the, the book of Acts. The church is praying. And here, when Paul was, would pray, he says, when I think about you guys, I'm filled with joy. Uh, I thank God for you. And we're going to see why here in a moment, what specifically encouraged Paul about these young believers. But think about that. Rather than being a source of grief, these Christians evoked gratitude from Paul and his uh, fellow servants. And, and in that way, they serve as a model for all of us. You know, I, I think sometimes is that true for me? You know, a lot of people pray for me. My parents pray for me. My family prays for me. People in the Not By Works ministry pray for me. Our church prays for me. And I wonder sometimes, you know, are they praying, Lord, please, oh, help JB to get his life straightened out. He's got all these problems, you know. Or when they pray for me, are they praying, man, thank, thank you, Lord, you know. When people pray for you, what are they praying? We want to follow the example of these young believers and be an encouragement. And that's what Paul says here. I thank God when I make mention of you in my prayers. And then that brings us to verse 3. So we're going to see three qualities of a healthy Christian. And uh, let's look at these verses first. Uh, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. We'll come back to the rest of the verse here in a moment. But here for the first time chronologically in Paul's writings, we have this famous triad, faith, love, and hope. And, and Paul's stress, as we're going to see here, is not on the merits of these virtues in and of themselves, but rather on what they produce. Faith, love, and hope. These are the active ingredients in a healthy Christian. Faith, love, and hope. In fact, one theologian put it this way, 
Faith rests on the past. Love works in the present. And hope looks to the future. I love that. By the way, anytime you see a quote from somebody named J.B., you should you know, pay attention. It's probably pretty good. J.B. Lightfoot, again, faith rests on the past. We trusted Christ with our salvation as these believers had. And we, we live out that faith with good works as we're going to see. Love motivates us in the present. If it weren't for love, we would have no motivation. And a hope, in, as we are going to see, the return of Christ in this letter, is what keeps us going. We look to the future. So the first thing that we see as a mark of a healthy Christian is a healthy Christian produces good works. A healthy, a healthy Christian produces good works. This is where most Christians, as I said at the outset, get off track in their understanding. They've been wrongly taught that if there are no good works, you must not be a Christian. Or if there are not enough good works, you're not a Christian. Or if there are too many bad works, you're not a Christian. And it's always this works-based, performance-based grid. And the reality is, we are not saved by works. We're saved by grace. And so we've got to, you know, stop thinking in those terms. We've got to break that, that chain of constantly looking at people's lives and hastily determining whether they're a Christian or not, right? In reality, the absence of good works may very well simply point to the fact that someone's an unhealthy believer, because unhealthy believers living immorally can look just like unbelievers living immorally. From the outside, we don't really know which is which until we begin to dialogue with them, hear their testimony, and find out has there been a time when they've trusted in Christ. Whether or not someone is a Christian is a factor of whether they've ever placed their faith in Christ. It is not a factor of their behavior. That's where people go wrong. So the first thing, a healthy Christian produces good works. Paul says, uh, we remember your work of faith. Work of faith here in Greek is literally work produced by faith. Work produced by faith. So here's the question, believer. Is your faith producing good works? It should be. It absolutely should be. In the same way that a healthy tree is going to produce beautiful, lush, green leaves, and a healthy fruit tree is going to pr produce uh, you know, vibrant fruit, a believer is going to produce good works if he's healthy. Uh, you know, let's go to uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Great passage, but you get to verse 10, and this is where a lot of people wrongly understand this verse, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard it cited in the context of, see, if you're not doing good works, Paul says you're not a Christian. That's not at all what he says here. In fact, it's nothing of the sort. So, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Very clear there that the gift is salvation, not faith. Grammatically and syntactically in the original text, you cannot have faith be the gift. That's wrong. If you ever hear someone teaching that or you read a commentary that says that, throw it away. They're coming from a Calvinistic perspective, and they're wrong. Faith is the means of receiving the gift. Faith is not the gift. Every human being on planet Earth has the capacity to believe or reject the gospel. It's called free will. We were made in the image of God. We had the freedom to choose to sin against God. God didn't force us to sin. And we have the freedom to receive God's remedy for our own predicament. It's a free choice. Whosoever will may come. 
faith cannot be the gift. It doesn't work grammatically and syntactically in the, in the uh, endings uh, here of the words. Uh, the gift is obviously salvation as it's described so many other places. Thanks be to God, Paul said, for his indescribable gift. What? Forgiveness. Eternal life. But we're not saved by works. And then verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should walk is one word in Greek. It's a verb, peripateo. It normally means just walking, like putting one foot in front of the other, but it can be used sort of metaphorically of walking by faith or walking in the Spirit, that kind of thing. But the key here, and I don't want to get too much down into the weeds, but sometimes understanding a little bit about the Greek word, the tense voice and mood, really makes the difference in properly understanding the passage. And that's the case here. So bear with me. But uh, peripateo here is in the subjective, I mean, subjunctive mood, subjunctive mood. In English, we don't have mood. We have tense and voice. But Greek has the mood. And this is the subjunctive mood here. And moreover, whenever you have a Greek verb in the subjunctive mood attached to the word that, see the word that there right before we should walk in them? In Greek, that's the word henna. It's called a henna clause or a purpose clause. Whenever you have henna with a subjunctive verb, it always is meant to show intention, not guarantee. In other words, it's the purpose or intention of the action. In other words, you know, why but why are we created in Christ Jesus? The reason we're created in Christ Jesus is that we should walk in good works. But these good works are not guaranteed. They're intended. A subjunctive mood with henna describes why or for what reason and indicates nothing about whether this will actually happen or not. It's just the reason for the action, not the guaranteed result of the action. Paul is not saying that because we're created in Christ Jesus, we're guaranteed to produce good works. Uh, certainly not in this passage, nor any other passage. In fact, he says just the opposite. He talks about how you can grieve the Spirit, you can quench the Spirit, you can resist the Spirit. You can completely turn your back on the Lord because the Spirit of God no more forces us to follow Him as a believer than He forced us to believe the gospel in the first place. Of course, Calvinists think you are forced. You have no choice. You know, it's all about election. If you're elect, you, you, know, you couldn't resist the gospel if you wanted to. Faith is just an involuntary response that you have no control over. And if you're not elect, you couldn't believe the gospel if you wanted to. Too bad, so sad. No matter how convicted you are over sin, if you're not elect, forget it. You do not have the capacity to believe the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, of course, we can receive the free gift. It's a universal, bona fide offer. Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is not indicating that every Christian is automatically going to do good works. It's there intended, but not guaranteed. We could go to James chapter 2, one of the most misinterpreted passages in all the Bible. So much so that the reformer Martin Luther, uh, he did not include James in the Bible. His Bible had 65 books. He did not think James was inspired because he misunderstood this passage. Um, and I just did, by the way, if you're interested in studying this passage in more detail, uh, late last year I taught at a school and I did two days of teaching on James 2, 14 to 26, and I posted the audio of that at the Not By Works website between Christmas and New Year's while we were out of town. So if you want to go back and listen to that two-part series, you can in more detail. But for our purposes, let's just look at verses 14 to 17. James says, What does it profit, 
my brethren. Profit just means to heap up or accumulate. What are you going to accumulate? What's the benefit, practically speaking? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? And in Greek, the required answer to that question is no. So let's be very clear. James is saying here unequivocally, it's unambiguous, there's no doubt about it, that you cannot be saved by faith alone. You absolutely must have works. Now, anybody have a problem with that? That's what he says. Well, Luther had a problem with it too, and so do most Bible commentators, because they don't understand the meaning of the word save. And they think James is talking about eternal salvation. So they do all kinds of hermeneutical gymnastics, jump through hoops, try to twist his words. And what is he talking about? Oh, he must be talking about a fake kind of faith or the wrong kind of faith. And you got to have the right kind of faith that produces works. And if it doesn't produce works, you never really had it. And you got all these, you know, weird uh, logical fallacies when actually the solution is quite simple. And nobody reading this letter in the original audience would have had any trouble understanding it. The word save is a Greek verb, uh, a sozo. It's used 108 times in the New Testament. Most of the time, more than half the time, it has nothing to do with eternal life. In English, we think of save meaning eternally. That's what we're conditioned to think, but not in the Greek New Testament. Uh, the same word is used to describe being rescued from danger, rescued from illness, healed from a sickness, rescued from a boat. Save. I, I, what, what were you delivered from? Sometimes, about 40% of the time, it means rescued from the penalty of sin and going to heaven. James uses the word five times in his short letter with five chapters, and all five times he's talking about physical, temporal salvation from danger, sickness, or harm. And that's what he's talking about here. If you read the whole letter, it's clear from the outset that he's talking to believers. He describes them beautifully in chapter 1 as those who've been born from above. He never questions their salvation. He challenges them to embrace the Word of God and live it out in their lives because sin leads to death, he says. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So stop sinning. Stop you know, living like the devil. It's going to lead to great unpleasantness in your life. He's challenging these young believers early on in the church age to live out their faith. Chapter 2 begins with, uh, you know, rebuking them for showing partiality in the church. Don't do that, he says, you know. And then he gets to, you know, verse 14, he says, because what's it going to profit you? What value is it if you have faith that'll get you to heaven, but it won't help you avoid the, the death-dealing consequences of sin in this life? And then he goes on to make several analogies. The one that I've got on the screen makes perfect sense when you understand the word save, can faith alone deliver you from the death-dealing consequences of sin? No, not any more than telling a brother or sister who's destitute, depart in peace, be warm and filled, is going to help them. You see someone starving, freezing out in the streets of Denver, and you say, God bless you. Is that going to make them warm and fill their stomach? No, no, it takes works. You've got to have practical effort put into it to actually make a difference. And he says, in the same way, if you've just got faith, but you don't have works, it's useless not to get to heaven. He never mentions heaven or hell. He never mentions eternal life. He never mentions the permanent penalty of sin. It has nothing to do with eternal salvation. He's saying, brethren, if you've got faith, that will get you to heaven, but you don't have works. Really, what benefit is that here and now in this earthly life? And that's what the whole letter is about. He goes on to talk about lots of other problems with these early Jewish believers, um, even things like murders and things that they were involved in. And, and it's just a great letter when you properly understand it. But he's not talking here about eternal salvation. Therefore, Paul and James are not in contradiction at all. They're talking about two different salvations. Faith 
James says, is intended to show itself in works. Not guaranteed. And if it doesn't, it doesn't mean you're going to hell. He certainly never says that, and he's already declared that these believers are absolutely born from above. But faith is intended to show itself in works. That's what a healthy Christian looks like. Uh, we could go to Galatians 5, where Paul talks about faith working through love. See, faith should work. That's what Ephesians 2.10 said. We just looked at it, the subjunctive henna clause there. So, is your faith working? That's the question. Is your faith working? A healthy Christian produces good works. The second way a Christian shows that he or she is healthy is by prioritizing love. By prioritizing love. Love is the supreme virtue in the Christian life. It covers a multitude of sins. It overlooks wrongs. It sustains us in the face of hurt and offense. If you don't have love and you're, you get hurt or wronged, you're going to be bitter and vengeful and hateful. But love overcomes that. And so the second thing Paul says, not only remembering their work of faith, but their labor of love. Labor of love here in Greek is literally labor prompted by love. Labor prompted by love. That is the toilsome, laborious activity that is prompted by and sustained by love when the going gets tough. So you've got work and labor here in our English translation, work of faith, labor of love. The stress on the word labor, it's the word kapos, is on the cost, the exertion, fatigue, and exhaustion that comes with it. Whereas work that we just talked about, the work of faith, may be pleasant and stimulating. It says nothing about the cost. Um, labor implies toil and cost. And had there been no love and that's agape love here, they would not have persisted in carrying on the hard and difficult activities now being performed. So many believers understand because of their faith in the Lord, they walk by faith, and that faith produces good works that reflect the righteousness of Christ that's in us. That's really the goal of the Christian life, is to act like the new man that you are, right? positionally we're in Christ, guaranteed, names written in the Lamb's book of life, born from above, saved, no issues there, positionally, the moment we believe the gospel. But that new man does not always uh, result in us living like it because we still have the old man. So if we cater to the old man, as Galatians 5 talks about, we're capable of not at all looking like the righteousness of Christ. The goal of the Christian life is for our practical righteousness to reflect our positional righteousness. That's the goal, right? And so, when we're walking by faith, trusting God, you know, wh whom you trust, you're going to obey, whom you know you're going to trust. Remember my no trust, obey model that I've talked about many times here. It's in our chart book. You got to get to know the Lord because the more you get to know him, the more you'll trust him. The more you trust him, the more you'll obey him. That's work, the good works. But, but labor here, it takes an attitude of love to endure hard times and difficulties. And again, this is agape love. It's not the romantic love. Eros would be that Greek word. That's where we get the English word erotic. And it's not brotherly affection, phileo. It's unconditional goodwill for others, agape. Love is the ultimate motivator. When we prioritize love, everything else falls into place and all of the hurts and wrongs and difficulties begin to fade away. Love, labor, of love. Paul talks about love and, and what an and beautiful what a beautiful description of love. This is what happens when we prioritize love. Love suffers long and is kind. 
Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. He goes on to say, now abide faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And a healthy Christian prioritizes love. I think the reason these early believers in Thessalonica were able to endure the persecutions that were really starting to ramp up 20 years into the church age was because they were still so close to that moment when they experienced the wonderful matchless love of Almighty God. God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. John the Apostle would later write, years after Paul is writing Thessalonians, that if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's that love, when we prioritize it, that motivates us. So a healthy Christian produces good works, prioritizes love, and third, a healthy Christian perseveres in trials perseveres in trials. After 2,000 years, really almost 2,000 years, not much has changed for Christians around the world. We're still facing trials, persecution, tribulation, just as Jesus told us we would. And, you know, I think this is where our Americanized version of Christianity works against us. I mean, we're all, we all see the scripture through the lens of our, of our current, uh, it's what the German theologians call the Sitz im Leben, our setting, our context, right? Everything is in a context. And so we view Scripture through the lens of Western American exceptionalism. And let's be honest, in 248 years or so, we've, we've been pretty blessed, right? We haven't had to face anywhere near the persecution that these Thessalonians were facing and that other Christians in the first century as it went on would face even worse. We haven't faced anywhere near the persecution that our brothers and sisters in Christ have faced around the world for 2,000 years. I mean, we're just beginning to get a taste of it. It's only been in the last three years that godly Christians singing praise hymns to God in the parking lot of their own church were arrested and hauled off to jail. Uh, you know, thank you for that emergency declaration that Trump gave us that allowed that. Uh, it's only been in the last three years that a Christian man reading Scripture from his Bible on a public sidewalk, not even trespassing, is handcuffed and hauled off and thrown in jail. So we're starting to see a little of it, but even that is, is nothing compared to what we could experience if the Lord tarries us coming. And I think one of the reasons the Lord put this, uh, these two letters on my heart for this year is I think they are right on point. The Lord's coming back. Here's some teaching about that. What do you do in the meantime as you wait for the Lord's return, right? And so, you know, a healthy Christian perseveres in trials. And we, bear, we dare not play the it's not fair game with other generations, right? <laughs> you know, when we start facing it, it's going to be interesting to see how healthy the church is at large. Uh, because, again, so many, you know, men and women of faith in the Christian church have suffered immensely in the centuries before now. And the mark of true health for a believer is how well do we suffer. That's the mark of, 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 of health. And a healthy Christian perseveres in trials. That's the third part of this triad. 
not only work of faith, labor of love, but he's remembering and rejoicing over their patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Patience of hope is literally endurance inspired by hope. Endurance inspired by hope. Now, the word patience in English has a little bit different connotation, quite a bit actually, from the real force of the word in Greek. It's the word hupomene. I've talked about it a lot. It's a, it's a key word in the Christian life of perseverance and, and patience and trusting the Lord, enduring, if you will, hupomene. Uh, in English, patience sometimes can have the sense of just quiet resignation that sort of passively waits, right? Uh, our little granddaughter is four years old, and you know she's at that age where she's always you know excited and she's you know wanting something, and when she wants something, she wants it right now, and it's it's so neat to watch you know uh, her mom Brooke just you know, be patient, you know pause just a minute, and Zoe bless her heart she'll just sit there quietly, you know. and then you know usually she does pretty good. Um, that's not what Paul's talking about here. That that's fine. That's patience, and sometimes we. We need to be patient and be patient at that red light, you know, quit inching forward, you know, be patient, right, in that line at the coffee shop, you know, patience, that, that's fine. But this is hupomene. It is the, the combination of heroic endurance and brave constancy that faces all the obstacles of life, severe trials, persecutions, with great confidence, the persecution that these Thessalonian believers faced gave them plenty of opportunity to exercise this endurance inspired by hope. And the inspiring, this, this inspiring hope of the future and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as he's going to go on to talk about in this letter frequently, the return of Christ, is, is something that is completely certain. You know, sometimes we hope, we use the word hope in English for something that we want to happen. But we're not necessarily certain it's going to happen, right? I mean, I want the Cowboys to win today so they can win the division and get two home playoff games. That's what I hope happens. But biblical hope is guaranteed. It's hope in something that is absolutely certain. It's not just a yearning for something. It's something that's certain because it's based on what God has said, and God's not a liar. And God has said that we will experience the ultimate victory when we leave this sin-stricken world and meet our Lord face-to-face -face in the air. And, and the rapture should produce this endurance, this patience. Um, we can be patient about a lot of things as we think about the Lord's return. We can be patient about our own slow growth knowing that eventually the glorification process will take place and will be, you know, this mortal will put on immortality. And all of the weaknesses and those same old besetting sins, someday they'll go by the wayside. We can also, by the way, be patient with God, knowing that someday in the eschaton, in the end times, when God's plan comes to full circle and fruition, that uh, the scales of justice will, will vindicate, you know, God. You know, we see so much injustice and inequity in this world, so much unfairness. We've all seen it. We've all experienced it to greater or lesser degrees. We've had plenty of injustice in our life. We, our whole life we've faced injustices, uh, you know, stories too long uh, to tell. And sometimes you wonder why, why God? But looking for the soon coming of our Lord and Savior, keeping our eyes fixed on Him, we know 
someday Christ is going to come back, ultimately at the second coming with that rod of iron, and it's all going to be made new. And the first step of that is the rapture when we meet the Lord in the air, that, that sudden mystery that Paul reveals in chapter 4. And, you know, Satan would like to silence this doctrine because the hope of Christ's return is one of the greatest motivations for Christian service and sacrifice. You want to know why the church today at large is full of baby Christians? You want to know why when things start to get bad, if the Lord tarries is coming, man, people are going to, Christians are going to be fleeing like crazy. There are going to be casualties on all over the place in the sidelines of Christianity. Why? Because the church has neglected teaching about the end times. People aren't trained from Scripture to look for and eagerly wait for the return of the Lord. Look up, be watchful. Our redemption is drawing nigh, Jesus told Israel. Right? And incidentally, and I love pointing this out to those who don't believe in the rapture, uh, Paul is going to, in chapter 4, connect belief in the resurrection. He says, since we believe Jesus died and rose again, we also believe in the rapture. So I love telling people that don't believe in the rapture, oh, you don't believe in the resurrection? And they go, oh, of course I believe in the resurrection. Well, you can't. You can't have one without the other. They're tied together. Just as sure as Christ rose, Paul says he's coming back. And so this idea of patience, of hope, you see it all through the New Testament, going back to James. As I mentioned, James is written to believers to tell them to live out their faith, to produce good works, not as a condition of proving whether they're really going to heaven or not. They're already going to heaven but they're lacking some of the blessings and the benefits and facing some of the consequences of a faith that does not produce good works. And he starts out his letter by reminding them to count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The more we pass the test, hupomene, again, the more likely we are to pass it the next time. The more we fail the test, the easier it's going to be to fail it the next time. We know that Christians are going to suffer persecution. Paul told us that in his last letter. Uh, Jesus himself told us that on the front end of the church, before the church was even founded. In the upper room, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. This is the same conversation where Jesus had told them, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, you may be also. A reference to the rapture. He didn't say that where you are, I may be also. He's not coming all the way to the earth. He says that where I am, I'm going up here somewhere. I'm going somewhere to prepare a place for you. But someday I'm going to come back. And that's what he was talking about. And that's a, a, motiv a motivator. Paul described it well in Romans 18 when he talks about how the sufferings of this present time really are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's to come. I love 2 Corinthians 4. He says, We don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction. Notice that? I don't know about you, but when I'm facing hardship and trials and difficulties and attacks, it doesn't feel very light. But Paul's talking about here by comparison in context. It's light. And it's just for a moment. And it's working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen. So that's really what Paul was, was, is going to talk about in 1 Thessalonians. Is look for the Lord's return. Don't look at things falling apart around you. 
When things are falling apart around us, it just means they're all coming together from Christ's perspective. But we look at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, before we close, we want to pick up and make a comment about the word election here in verse 4, and then we want to close with verse 5. But, you know, just a comment here. You know, Paul says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Look, that God has chosen to bless some individuals with eternal life is clearly taught in the Old and New Testaments alike. No question about it. But equally clear is the fact that God holds each individual personally responsible in his decision to trust or not trust Jesus Christ. It's this antinomy. It's this thing that's incomprehensible to the human mind. God elects, but we have free will. Whosoever will may come. The difficulty in putting divine election and human free will together is in understanding how both can be true. That both are true is unambiguous in Scripture. The Bible teaches both. But how both can be true, boy, that's where we struggle. How in the world can these two truths be true at the same time? But the Bible has many antinomies. Because God exists outside of time, space, and matter. We think linear in the time-space continuum. But God says, I'm three but one. Well, how's that possible? God says Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. How is that possible? The Bible says a virgin had a child. How is that possible, right? So there are a lot of things in Scripture that we believe because God said it, but we don't understand it. And that task of reconciling sovereignty and free will, election and free choice, is beyond our pay grade, right? We don't have the mental capacity to figure it out any more than we have the visual ability to see angels unless they manifest in human form as they can do. But in the angelic unseen realm, we can't see them. We have a lot of examples of that in Scripture. Or in the you know, hearing realm, we can't hear certain high-pitched sounds and frequencies. I can't hear a lot of frequencies, even regular frequencies. But we can't, the human ear is not made to hear certain frequencies. Well, in the same way, the human mind simply cannot comprehend this. That's what Paul meant when he said, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So don't get hung up every time you see the word election and try to twist it and turn it, oh, it must mean this or it must mean that. Not every reference to election is referring to personal election to salvation. Sometimes it's national election. There's different context determines meaning. But I tell you, I've studied this for 35 years. You can't get around the fact that God chooses. And, and I don't have a problem with that. I just accept it, and then I move on to the here and now. And the here and now is we need to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Whosoever will may come. Anyone can believe the gospel. It's just a simple matter of faith. And then the last verse Verse 5, Paul talks about how the gospel did not come to his converts that he was writing back to in word only. In other words, it wasn't some cleverly delivered sermon. It wasn't, you know, arguing them into the faith. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit's still in the saving business today. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You can't argue someone into the faith. Uh, you, you know, you can try. But it's a waste of time. All we've got to do is preach the gospel. It's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation. D.L. Moody said you just the gospel is like a, a lion. You just open the door of the cage and get out of the way. 
And if we share the gospel clearly, accurately, and urgently, then the Spirit of God can use that to draw people to Him, to draw the lost to Him. The problem is a lot of false gospels being presented, and they're impotent. They're powerful. If you tell someone you want to go to heaven, just simply clean up your life, turn from all your sins, forsake your sins, promise to be good, pledge allegiance to Christ, surrender your all to Him, invite Him into your heart, and commit your life to Him, they're not going to be saved because none of that saves you. It's faith alone in Christ alone that saves you. None of those terms are biblical. You never find them anywhere in Scripture as a means of gaining eternal life. So we've got to be clear and accurate on the gospel. So there you go. Portrait of a healthy Christian. It can be difficult, as I said, if not impossible sometimes to distinguish an unbeliever living in sin from a, a believer living in sin, an unhealthy believer. But yet we've got to distinguish between those two. We've got to understand the categories. And in our text, as we start 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives us a glimpse, a portrait of a healthy Christian who produces good works, prioritizes love, perseveres in trial. These qualities are born out of those three key Christian virtues, faith, love, and hope. So the takeaway is three questions I want you to ask yourself this morning. You want to know if you're a healthy Christian? Ask yourself these questions. Number one, do you trust God enough to obey Him? Do you trust God enough to obey Him? The Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. Every time we sin, it's essentially an expression of lack of trust in God. Lord, I know you said not to do this, but I don't really believe you. I'm going to do it my way. Or Lord, I know you said I should do this, but I don't really believe you. I'm going to do it my way. Lack of trust. Is your faith producing good works? Number two, is your love for others costing you anything? Love. Does it reign supreme? That's a healthy Christian. Not that there aren't consequences. Not that there isn't discipline, those types of things. Uh, this isn't the postmodern, anything will go, and we don't have the right to correct others. The Bible as a whole, the whole counsel of God, teaches us to, to bear one another's burdens, to you know, confront people and help them, help weak believers and so forth. But is love supreme? And number three, does your hope in the rapture motivate you to endure trials? Does your hope in the rapture motivate you to endure trials? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, time together today, Lord. It's always a privilege to be able to open your word and just work through it and, and talk about the, the timeless truths of Scripture. I pray that today the Word of God would, would go forth with great power and that it would convert, uh, encourage and convict and uh, lead and guide and have its work in each of our hearts uniquely uh, as each of us uh, examine our own hearts and, 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 and talk with you. Lord, we again pray if anyone listening to this uh, uh, sermon online isn't a believer, that, Lord, please, as, as time is short and there's an urgency to the hour, I pray that your Holy Spirit would get a hold of them and not let go until they've trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.